Well, good morning again. Um, let me tie in last week for just a, a moment. Last week we was Good Shepherd Sunday, and we heard again that Jesus intended to be the Good Shepherd beyond the flock of Israel, beyond the ethnic and geographical bounds of Israel, saying what? I have sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So this week we actually see this in motion. We see Philip a Jewish disciple of Jesus who is from Jerusalem, making that happen, embodying that, living that out in unlikely places and with unlikely people. After his work in Samaria, a very unlikely place among unlikely people, where he is at the direct urging of the Spirit, he heads out on this 60-mile road that stretches through Gaza. Um, and there he shares the gospel with an influential Ethiopian man and someone we might call in our day a sexual minority. There are, of course, similarities and differences in that description, but more on that in just a bit. In short, what Jesus said would happen is happening. And it's happening because his people have fully embraced this mission. They've embraced it. Lately, I've been talking a bit about who we are as a church. What is our mission? How do we, how do we address the problems of the church in America? Um, what is our mission? And really, our mission is just the mission of the church. Village Church doesn't have a specific, you know, its own mission. We are, we are called up together in the mission of the church for two millennia, handed down from Christ and his apostles. So it's not new or unique, and it's a mission that flows out of this identity and this culture that's established in our common baptismal life. Through our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, and by this moral vision that we have because of Scripture. And we heard in the readings today, both in Christ, in the Gospel, and in 1 John, that we are given a moral vision, commands that help us to be fully human and to be a full expression of the community God has created. In discussion with our staff about this, I've leaned into some, con uh, some concepts from maybe an unlikely source, a guy named Peter Singe. He's a systems scientist from MIT, and he focuses primarily on what he calls organizational learning. How do organizations understand themselves? How do they move forward? But really, these are just concepts that you can readily identify at work in the call of Jesus because all truth is God's truth, as we say, right? Every tributary of wisdom has the same river as its source, of true wisdom, that is. So Singe says that a mission that's going to get traction it's going to inspire the following four responses. I want that. It's worth it. I believe it. And it's, I see it. I see it. Or put another way, it'll meet these four criteria. It's relevant. It's significant. It's achievable. And it's clear. So what you see at work in Acts is a people who are filled with a desire for the new life, the new world that Jesus promised to make through his church. They want it. They want that. And they want others to have it. You also see them in Acts 8 in particular, they are facing withering persecution that has really mounted up at this point, and it has forced them out of a comfort zone. It's forced them out of Jerusalem. But their sacrifice and their effort that we see in the face of all this persecution says what? It still is worth it. They're convinced that it's worth it. So they want it. It's worth it. And then the call is a massive undertaking. It's massive. 
But every faithful footfall of theirs and every persistent prayer that they pray together is evidence that they believe it's achievable. And lastly, the risen Jesus left them instructions in no uncertain terms in Matthew 28. Go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Tell them how the world works. Tell them who they are. And he says, I'll be with you. The mission is clear. They see it. They see it, and they see it working. And Philip is just one example of this, this desirable mission, right? This, this mission that is worth it, this mission that is clear and that he believes is achievable, and he's putting his oomph behind it. Philip is in one example, and some background here with Philip is important. Acts 8.3 says that Saul, who we know later will become, be converted and become Paul, he was ravaging the church, it says, entering house after house in Jerusalem, dragging off men and women and sending them to prison. Philip and others, virtually everyone but the actual apostles, they flee Jerusalem, they leave. But as far as these disciples are concerned, the mission is not over. It's just taken on a different form. It's not in jeopardy, it's just a new opportunity. And so let me just clarify this real quick to avoid any confusion. This is not the same Philip that Jesus called as one of his apostles in Galilee. This Philip is one of seven men who are set apart in Acts 6 to, do, to, to wait at tables, as they say, to do administrative work or what we might call helps ministry in the church. They're making sure that everyone gets food and so that the apostles can, can continue, the disciples can continue to preach, to study, to teach, evangelize. But what happens here is this persecution, it changes the game. This dispersion of all of the Christians, it changes the game for Philip. He's this one-time deacon serving in the pantry, which is a noble work. It's a spirit-filled work. He becomes Philip the Evangelist, and he's now known as Philip the Evangelist. He isn't withering in hard times. He's left, he's been pulled away from his homeland. But the mission is clear, and he wants it. He believes it. And clearly, it's worth it. The really good news is Jesus has already been where he's about to go. Literally. He's already been to Samaria. This is where Philip goes first. And hostility between the Jews and between the Samaritans had persisted for a thousand years. Imagine entering a cultural context where you've got a thousand years of trouble. And you represent one side of that trouble. John's gospel sums up the situation simply saying this, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's pretty clear, full stop. But Jesus personally challenged that notion in his own life by reaching out to that Samaritan woman at the well. It was shocking. And so Jesus has been there. Philip's visit there has its share of drama if you read the story. But in the end, these ethnic and religious enemies of Israel, of the flock of Israel, who they like Moses, but they deny the prophets, and there's a theological, cultural, religious problem, they're also considered half-breeds and heretics. What do they do? They overwhelmingly embrace the gospel, and they join the Jews like Philip in this community. That's the power of the Spirit at work in a people who are obeying Christ mission. What we need to see, though, what is essential to us as it was to them is this. 
Their new identity in Christ through baptism reframes everything else about them. It makes it possible that anybody from anywhere at any time can begin to follow Jesus and to come in to that culture, that community that Christ has created for us. This is what we see at work in Philip's baptism of this eunuch from Ethiopia. Who is this guy? Who is he anyway? We don't know all the details, but we have some historical stuff. But let's start with the simple stuff. The Ethiopia of his day was not the Ethiopia of our day. It was really what we call the Upper Nile right now in South Sudan. But it's still one of the farthest southern reaches of the known world. And it was accessible by road, so that 60-mile road through Gaza, then you got to turn hard south, and you can head down that direction. Or by boat, you can go there via the Red Sea. And Philip is under orders from this heavenly messenger to get on this road, this 60-mile desert road, which is not unheard of for God to say, hey, get up and go to a place that I'm going to show you what, what it's about, but just go. So he goes. So he goes to this road that heads into Africa through Egypt. And Luke tells us the man Philip meets must have been a convert to Judaism. He must, he, he, th this would have meant that he was beginning to order his life around the Mosaic law. He would be making pilgrimages to Israel, he, uh, or to the temple for sacrifice. He would have pledged a, a sense of allegiance to the one true God, to Yahweh. And so he found himself on his journey pondering Israel's prophetic writings, particularly Isaiah. And this would have been a picture of his privilege, in fact, just to be able to have the scroll of Isaiah on his own in that day, to carry it around wherever he wanted to go in his chariot. But I'll tell you why him reading Isaiah is really important in just a moment. What else is true? He's from the African continent. And so um, he's, tied, and he's tied closely to Ethiopian royalty, which would mean he is most likely black. But before we make assumptions here, just before we, we cast sort of our cultural understanding on what that might mean, black skin meant nothing in that day except a clue to his homeland. Imagine a world like that with all its obvious other problems, but still. Race and thus racism on the basis of skin color had not become the social construct that we understand it as. This construct that began with the slave trade in Spain and Portugal in um, the 15th century or maybe earlier to do what to justify empire building through uh, enslavement of a so-called inferior race on the basis of their different pigmentation we put it that way it seems absurd doesn't it because it is and we're all agonizingly aware of how this legacy persists and it resists our efforts to eliminate it. But my point here is that race was simply about your people, your lineage, geography, and culture, but no less a significant boundary, no less a reason for prejudice or concern. It meant difference to have different skin, but not degree of value or humanity. His blackness would have certainly been a feature, rare in Jerusalem, but little more than an indication of his homeland. More could be said on that. But the gospel, what I, what, the point I want to make here is the gospel was going to black Africa in the first generation of the church thanks to Philip and this believing Ethiopian eunuch, an extremely unlikely person. And so we get to this other piece, maybe the most intriguing to some of us. 
Because he was a courtier handling the purse strings of Candace, which Candace was not a proper name, it was a title, a dynastic title of the queen mother of Ethiopia. You could say the Candace like you might say the Pharaoh. But because of his role, he was unmarried all his life through celibacy vows, at least. Or it may have been that he had allowed himself to be castrated, removing any temptation for him or any perceived threat to the queen mother, to other royals, to other courtiers, sexually. In either case, he was to be solely devoted to his role, physically and or functionally eschewing married life and active sexuality for a purpose. Just as Jesus had already been to Samaria, Jesus has been here too. Do you know this? He talks about men like this very eunuch in Matthew 19. Here Jesus is In Matthew 19, just context, he's elevating the high standard of marital faithfulness and commitment. He's reminding the Pharisees that the marriage is a sacred union. It's not merely this negotiable arrangement. They can arbitrate with man-made laws. Jesus takes them back to creation when he talks about the nature of marriage. He always does that, by the way. But his disciples react to this high standard, and then they say, well, geez, who should even be married if that's the case? Maybe it's better not to marry, they say. But how does Jesus respond? How does he respond here? In our day, we might be tempted to imagine him saying, oh, no, 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 everybody should get married. No, 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 it's it's wonderful. Everybody should get married. But he doesn't. Here's what he says, and I'm going to just carefully paraphrase verses 11 and 12 of Matthew 19. He says, marriage isn't for everyone. Some are eunuchs from birth who never give marriage a thought, or they're physically hindered. Others are never afforded the opportunity in life, which is the result of various circumstances. Some decide not to get married simply to serve the kingdom without distraction. And then he says, but if you feel called to be faithfully married, then do it. In other words, if you can hear it, then hear it. Jesus is already casting vision for a community of both the married and the single. Those devoted to natural family and those to spiritual family. And neither is the end all. Remember, Jesus remained single, and so did many of his disciples devoted to celibacy. And there's the eunuch right here in this chariot. He's a foreigner to Israel. He's single. He's sexless. He's married to his role. And he's pouring over the scroll of Isaiah. Why does this matter? Why might Isaiah have been particularly in focus for him? Let me just read you this from Isaiah 56. Isaiah prophesies, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Can you imagine being this man and reading this word here and wondering, who is this one? Who is Isaiah? Or who is Isaiah talking about that this is possible for me? Do you feel it? There had actually been limitations to worship in Deuteronomy for people like him, especially those who had undergone a physical change. And Isaiah prophesied that these limitations would fall away because of this suffering servant about whom he is reading, to whom Philip introduces him, and by the Spirit begins to speak the truth. 
the one to whom Philip introduces him, and the one with whom he will be joined in baptism. The message here is this. At the core of Christian personhood, otherwise shaped by ethnic or cultural or religious and even personal realities, at the core is new creation. New birth found in and through the waters of baptism. In these waters, which are more than just kind of a passageway, a mark, you know, a, a rite of passage or just a symbol. In these waters, our whole bodies, not just an area of our understanding or even the practice of our spirituality, they enter a new world that's made possible by Jesus and in Jesus. When we talk about the meaning of Christian baptism, we have to go to the Jordan where Jesus himself was baptized by John. We understand it. This is, we understand it as a womb of sorts. A birthplace for new creation. A new crossing over. A new crossing through. And Paul tells the Colossians, in baptism we die with Jesus and are raised with Jesus. What is true or real about us does not cease to be our lived experience. But in baptism received by faith, all of our true and lived experience finds its order. It finds its meaning. It finds its value. And so we see Philip sitting alongside an Ethiopian eunuch who says, why not me? Why not here? Why not now? And through faith and baptism, he finds a new foundational identity that's granted in love and it's grafted into love, the love of a new community. He is us. And we are him. Our lives, our stories, our bodies are a diversity, but they all point toward and move toward the same center. The choices we make aren't because of who we are trying to be. We live and choose because of who we know by faith we already are. Whether we're rich or poor, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, married or unmarried, from America or Ethiopia, male or female, gay or straight, the claim and the call upon our lives is clear in our union with Christ that is signed and sealed and secure in our baptism. Every spiritual, every moral, every social imperative is simply a deeper call into Christ in whom we abide. It's the call to learn to do what he told his disciples would be necessary to remain in Him, stick close to Him to resource our own selves, our own identities, to resource the call upon us, doesn't matter where we're from or who we are or what we feel. Sadly, baptism in the 21st century is often intellectualized, right? It's memorialized. It's reduced to this one-off experience or this doctrinal idea that hovers somewhere in our personal religious history and theology. But in the history of the church, and in our sacramental understanding of it, it's meant to be continually recalled as the moment our whole lives began again by God's grace. It's the moment we entered a new community, a new family with a new purpose. So the challenge to us corporately is to begin to see one another according to our baptism and what it really means about us. Not negating the beauty of our individuality, not negating the differences, but also not allowing these differences to have the first or the final word about who we are. That belongs to Jesus, 
who went into the waters of baptism first to create a new womb for us, a place of acceptance, a place of power, a place where his spirit meets us. So when we look at others in this diverse flock, is that what we're looking for? Common, shared, baptismal life and renewal that's at work over the span of our lives to renew us together? Are we patient? Moreover, when we look at those who don't know the love of Christ as it really is, do we see someone for whom we are hopeful? Or do we see an outsider and an enemy? Someone we long to meet in the waters of baptism where Christ is and will be, not disqualifying them? If we truly understand what Christ has done with us and for us in baptism, embraced by faith, of course, then we're all walking on that 60-mile road with Philip. Do you know that? Saying, Lord, what are you showing me? To whom are you leading me? Who are you inviting into my space? We're on mission. We're listening to the Spirit. We're ready to tell the truth and to welcome the foreigner and the outsider because that's who we were. And in fact, apart from the grace of our new birth in baptism, that's who we are. That's a great place to amen. amen. I'm going to leave you with the facts from Paul. Galatians. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's the first reality of our identity. Romans 6, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So be it. So be it, Lord. Help us as we walk in newness of life. Help us as we face our personal struggles, as we live our unique stories, but help us as we do it together as one body and one spirit with one hope and one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We want it. Lord, we believe it. It's worth it. We want you. Lord, we believe you. And above all things, you're worth it. Work this truth in our hearts, Lord. Help us to live it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.